Hello, I am the Nihilist, and welcome to my Album of the Month Club. thinking to yourselves right now. Nihilist, what is Album of the Month Club? Well, the year is this year. It is 2023, the year of our Lord, 2023. 23 has always been a bit of a lucky number for me. It is the date on which I was born. And it's also mythically quite a magical number, according to William S. Burroughs and Robert Anton Wilson. So for the year of our Lord, 2023, I have decided to upload one album per month from my back catalogue. That is music that I have uh, written, produced and recorded myself, made at some point over the last 25 years. And I am now sharing it with you guys because last year, 2022, thanks to the advice of my friend and sometimes collaborator Monopoly Phonic, I signed up for DistroKid which is a distribution program on which you can upload any of the music that you've made, anything that you want, really, anything that you own the copyright claim to or the intellectual property of. And DistroKid will then upload that stuff to all the major streaming platforms. Now, when I was first beginning to get into making music, something like a a tool like DistroKid didn't exist. You had to individually approach different distributors who had different deals with different shops and record labels and all sorts of stuff. It was a much more complex time in terms of getting your music out there. Last year, I found out how incredibly easy it now is to get all your tunes hosted on all the major platforms like Apple Music, Tidal, um, Amazon, I believe, and most importantly of all, I think, because it's the great equaliser, the one that everyone listens to, Spotify. So last year I took the plunge and I bought myself an account with DistroKid and I started putting some of my music on Spotify. Now, last week I decided to go back and listen to some of that music and one of the things I realised that Either the files that I had given to DistroKid in the process of me uploading them to them, but more than likely the stuff that I've had sitting on a disk on a storage space for years and years at this point, some of them are quite corrupted. So I've actually gone back and taken down everything that I put on Spotify and I'm going to go back and I'm going to do it again and I'm going to do it properly, going to make sure that they're all the original files up to the best audio condition that I can get them across in Bearing in mind that one of my own personal production aesthetics is lo-fi-ness, that is the opposite of hi-fi-ness, which basically means it's kind of gritty and it's recorded in a very lo-fi, not hi-fi, not high-tech way. I've decided that I'm going to take better care of the files that I have and make sure that the ones I am uploading for mass distribution to whoever cares to listen to this stuff are in as peak condition as they can be considering they're all swathed in noise and hiss and growls and feedback and all that kind of lovely 
hot distortion that seems to be not that not that popular anymore, but definitely was when I was coming up in the 90s. And you know what? It's a bit of a big project, actually. Once I decided to set my mind to this, it's it's going to be a bit of a voyage through my own history, to be honest with you. We're talking about music that I've made at some point. Some of these tunes are going to be, where are we now? We're 2023, and I bought my first four track in 1999. So some of these tunes are going to be roughly, could be even 24 years old. Although I think, from my own history, I don't think I would would put anything out that I made within, say, the first year of coming to grips with how to make music. But this is going to be a bit of a trawl through my own personal history, as well as my back catalogue of music recordings and productions and stuff that I've done. So I also decided to make a companion podcast series along with the album releases called Album of the Month Club podcast, I guess I might call it. I don't know. I'll come up with a better name at some point. It's not really that important. Maybe liner notes. I like liner notes. The reason I like liner notes is because I'm going to take the time to speak about every album individually on the podcasts that come with the monthly releases through the Album of the Month Club. And here we are. This is the first episode of... Shall we stick with liner notes? Okay, I'm going to stick with liner notes for this. Liner notes. Welcome to the first episode of Liner Notes for the Nihilists Album of the Month Club. And the first album that I'm going to reveal to the public, a deep from my back catalogue of homegrown four-track recordings, is an album that I called Lo-Fi Gold. <laughs> to me after I'd finished or at least thought I'd finished recording this uh, liner notes podcast episode about lo-fi gold that there's probably an entire generation of people of younger folks coming up behind me who probably don't really don't fully get what lo-fi actually means because the technology that we have access to right now in the year 2023 it's so incredibly easy to make music and make music of a relatively high caliber uh, sound quality wise even compared to when I started out, that I should probably take a little bit of time to explain what actually lo-fi means. I mean, I get that you probably understand what it means theoretically, but I mean practically, like how did we end up with music that sounds so scuzzy and so fuzzy and dirty and hissy and, you know, for want of a better phrase, badly recorded, but also, I'm aware that in 2023, that there are entire genres like 
synthwave particularly, but also low. There is lo-fi synth stuff still, and vapor wave, and basically anything with the wave affix at the end of it tends to be this kind of music. But there's a lot of people out there producing now, and producing digitally, and then using plugins and maybe some techniques as well, but mostly plugins to recreate this really rough sound which it's kind of impossible to make a sound this rough anymore because the technology has moved on so well um that i thought i'd just take a moment to just like talk about how this album ended up being so lo-fi and why it's so lo-fi and what actually lo-fi means like that and for that um to explain a bit about what that is it's got to do with the sound quality so i decided to record this bit on my iphone because now we can record things in really good quality on our phones that we walk around with all the time. Um, but I came to make this music being so lo-fi through very practical means. And it wasn't even something that I was specifically intending to do. I think there had been artists that had come before me like Beck who had made stuff very, very low quality and had sold it on a major label. And that was kind of opened the doors to being like, OK, well, you can actually gain certain amount of recognition even if your techniques are very lo-fi and quote-unquote bad by kind of like major studio major label mainstream music um standards but i wanted to talk about how this album ended up being so lo-fi and the first thing that i need to mention now is that i recorded all of this music on a four track you probably know what a four track is and i'm sure there's still people out there who use four tracks but it's worth um, explaining that now in the digital age when you can download you know something like you can download the trial suite of Ableton for free and you can have unlimited well I don't know I pay for Ableton so I don't know if the trial Ableton will give you unlimited tracks to record onto but you get what I mean like it's digital so there's no limitation on what you want to do or at least the limitation is much much smaller than when I started making music so in 1999, uh, my mum won the lottery. She won 10 grand on a scratch card and she gave me a bunch of money. And I decided to buy a bunch of music equipment because I wanted to really, really wanted to start making music. One of the first things that I bought in 1999 with um, £1,000 that my mum had given me was a four-track mini-disc player. Now, you might even be asking, what's a mini-disc? Um, mini discs were really cool for like a minute in the kind of mid to late 90s and into the early 90s as well they kind of predated mp3s and if you are under a certain age now you might not even get that like we actually before we had mobile smartphones that we could put all the music on we had mp3 players which were tiny little phone like things not they weren't phones but they were little like devices that you carry around that you stick your headphones into and they would carry a certain amount of music that you can scroll through and play at your choice before we had them we had mini discs which was a similar thing. There were like a portable format that you would record loads of music onto and then you could take it around and listen to it wherever you wanted to, but dependent on what you had recorded onto the mini disc. Before that, you had cassettes. They were all, it's all the same kind of theory of thing. But mini discs were, if you've never seen one, they were kind of like a small CD encased in a thick plastic shell. Um, a bit like a floppy disc. But now that I've brought up floppy disks, if you don't know what a mini disc is, you're probably unlikely to know what a floppy disk is either. These are all outmoded things that, like outmoded technologies that we relied on really heavily back in the day. It's quite funny now, thinking 25 years later, how certain stuff, like I'm currently setting up another studio and my studio partner was like, what is Firewire? And it was like, oh my God, 
you don't know what FireWire is. Like we spent so many years trying to work out FireWire because it was a great transmission system for high bit rate audio files through various different <laughs> pieces of technology that I don't even need now. So anyway, back to why this stuff was lo-fi. Mainly it was lo-fi because I was recording onto a four track and the way four tracks work is that you only have four channels to record onto. So channel one, two, three, and four. Usually you record like drums onto channel one, bass onto channel two, whatever onto channels three and four. But I was using a mini disc. So mini discs actually had specially made four track mini discs, but they cost something like back in the day, they're like 15 to 20 pounds. So to record onto mini disc, I used to just buy the normal mini discs that you get and like you get a five, pack of five of them for a tenor in HMV or whatever. And you'd put that into the mini disc player. And even though you only had two channels to record onto, what you could do is you could bounce things onto channels over and over again. So for instance, I'd record a drum pattern onto channel one, and then I'd record a bass line onto channel two. And then that's both of my channels used up. So I would bounce the bass line from channel two onto channel one. So then channel one would become the drum kit or the drum pattern and the bass line. And then I have a free channel to sing over or record some other stuff and put that on it. And then technically you were able to do infinite bounce because you just keep bouncing everything you recorded onto channel two back onto channel one. But what that did is it degraded the sound quality. So like if you recorded maybe six different things, by the time you had bounced five of them all onto channel one, the first thing that you'd recorded onto channel one became like the sound quality degraded a lot because of the constant bouncing. And then there was other techniques and other things that used to happen that, you know, I didn't do this stuff on purpose. This was accidental. But now looking back into it and looking how where people are at now with, for instance, lo-fi recording techniques for making retro sounding synthwave or whatever, you would... Um, if you forgot to turn down the other channels on a desk or on the, the other channels on the four track, and if, for instance, two of the other channels were left live, they'd be creating a small amount of hiss because that's what channels do when they're open on certain old, well, on a lot of equipment still even, but on a lot of, oh, back then, definitely, all the equipment that you had, if you left a channel open and you weren't using it to record on, if you didn't turn that channel off or turn it down, you would get the slight grainy hiss of that channel getting recorded into what you were also recording. So when you think about the capacity of bouncing down over and over again, so much different material, even though it's the same stuff over and over again, if I had forgotten to turn off the other channels or if the, the other channels were open for, for instance, I was using them for effects or something, then that's adding a whole other layer of hiss and roughness and dirt onto the music files. And people pay a lot of good money to recreate this stuff now. There's programs out there, there's specific um, courses that will teach you how to make lo-fi music. And there's specific producers out there who have made an entire career on this being their aesthetic. Um, I love that. I love that. It's great. But looking back on this stuff now from like a 25-year, 20-year gap, I wasn't specifically trying to make that stuff. It was just that I really had no other option. This was like I was recording everything onto a four-track with some pretty other busted bits of kit. But I'll go into what else I was using in future episodes of Liner Notes because it's a bit more relevant than some of, the, and some of the other work that I'm going to be putting out there. But I just wanted to clue the listeners in on what lo-fi means and how I ended up with this lo-fi aesthetic for this album. And 
also to say that like 20 years later the way music is going is so ridiculously clean and sharp and everything is so digitized to the precisest point actually listening to this music now it's got a real charm and i think it's something that modern listeners might listen back to and be a bit like how did this happen so i just wanted to explain that to you before we move on with more info about the album Time for some real talk now. It's a bit of a big psychological dive for me to do this project, but also for me to revisit all this music. Like I've mentioned, some of the stuff, especially the stuff that's going to be featured on Lo-Fi Gold, is very old. It's um, at least some of this stuff is from possibly 1999, but from around 2000 to maybe about 2003. So some of these tracks are definitely 20 years old possibly pushing it a bit more, knowing the content that's on there. And in my own head, I was really nervous to go back and revisit this stuff because, you know, it's 20 years ago. And not just as a human being, but also as an artist, I've grown and I've changed. And while I'm still I'm still proud of this music, I still was proud of this music in my own head. It was still a massive leap to actually like sit down and like listen to all these things, listen to them through from start to finish, reminisce about where I was as a human being in that period in my life and where the world was, where music was, where all of these things were. And yeah, it's been good though, I will say. The reason I decided to scrap all the stuff that I'd already put up onto Spotify was that I just took a chance one day, this is about a month ago or whatever, and I was just like listening to some stuff on Spotify and I was like, oh, I forgot, my music is on Spotify as well, I've uploaded a little bit of it. So I went to my artist profile and I started listening back to the tunes. I started with Lo-Fi Gold and surprisingly I was kind of like this music isn't actually that bad but unfortunately what I did discover was that there was some corruption on the files that I'd uploaded and also some of them didn't sound up to the best audio quality in terms of what I could do with mastering and the volume limiting and all that kind of stuff now but I was surprised when I originally went back and started listening to my music again how positively actually the space it occupies in my brain how positive that space is even though it's wrapped up with all these kind of human ideals of potential, like, you know, like shame and embarrassment about, oh God, what was I like? What was I doing? Oh my God, it was so pretentious. It was such a dick back then. I mean, yeah, all those things are not necessarily untrue, but I've surprised myself because I actually still quite like this music. Even if some of the things that I was aiming for and I was striving for, like a kind of bluesy Americana vibe, it was like, that's not you, babe. Stop pretending to be a black American from the 20s. You're a white Irish kid who grew up in the 90s. That's not your thing. 
even though some of that stuff is like, oh, it's a bit, a bit cringy, you know, maybe I'm just blowing my own horn here. And why not? Because who else is going to blow your horn if not you're going to blow it yourself? I'm actually quite surprised at how well some of this music stands up. I've got a lot to unpack. It's, yeah, there's a lot going on here. There's feelings of, I don't know, like angst, bitterness, heartbreak, joy, elation. There's failure. Failure is a big thing that is a running constant in my head about my own creative output. And I don't, you know, as I'm getting older, I'm beginning to see, I look back on stuff like this 20 years later And it's not a failure. It's actually quite good. And maybe the reason that I thought it was so bad was because my expectations were so high and it was unrealistic and I was delusional and I was a child of, you know, a certain, uh, like, cultural forces that, you know, drive people to these kind of delusional beliefs about what they can do and what they can achieve. But looking back on it now and listening to it, I'm just... I'm just grateful that it's there and that I did it. And I'm just, I'm just grateful that anyone would actually choose to listen to me do do this. Would actually choose to listen to me talk all this shit about all this old music and all this music that I've created over the last 20 years that has been languishing in this kind of internal closet, cupboard, grave, tomb of just, oh, I don't know, I like, none of that ever came to much, but what I did come to, I realise now, is that it's just music, it's just music, and I made it, and I did it, and it's out there, and it's there for people to listen to now, and if people choose to listen to my music, like, it is actually mind-blowing that anyone would choose to listen to this stuff, so if you have made the choice to listen to music by The Nihilist, or to this podcast, and you're kind of now curious to hear what my actual music is like. Thank you. Oh my God. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Wow. Thank you so much. to give a really big shout out to the Italian artist Ango of the Meek Dead who supplied the incredible cover art on Lo-Fi Gold. That cover art actually was supplied for a different project but being my own boss and not being beholden to any record label telling me what I can and can't do or what um, what order any of this music can come out again on, because believe it or not, this actual album, Lofa Gold, was supposed to be the third instalment in a trilogy of albums, and out of nowhere, the next big thing, Lo-Fi Gold. But in hindsight, I was never really happy with the cover that I had made myself for the album Lo-Fi Gold when I originally released it, which I think was in digitally, I think I put this out originally for the first time in 2008, roughly around then. Um, or 2009, maybe, around some point between 2007 and 2010. My mind is blurry. I'd say 2008, 2009. But Ango um, did some incredible art for another one of my albums that I never actually got to use as a cover art. And I was going through my Nihilist archive and I saw this 
art that he had done. It's so beautiful. It's so cool. It's so trippy. It's actually so suitable for this other album, like so crazy suitable for this other album. And I did a slight bit of tinkering and changed the name so that the name of the album was actually Lo-Fi Gold rather than AKA, which was the original project that I asked him to produce the the um, cover art for. And just, it like the whole thing just came together. Suddenly it was like, wait a minute, this isn't a, a random throwaway collection of four-track recorded demos anymore. This is its own album. This is a fucking album that stands from track one through to track 15, no matter how mad that stuff gets. Because fucking hell, mate, Beck did it with Mellow Gold. And I listen back to this now and I go, I fucking did it with Lo-Fi Gold too. And it was having the artwork that I always wanted to use this artwork, but I never got the proper chance because it didn't really fit with the project that I commissioned it for. But seeing this album come together with this artwork, it's actually liberated it a bit for me and my psyche because it does, it's not this kind of like, oh, I had to do a stopgap thing to fill out a trilogy series like, hello, J.J. Abrams. Fuck that. No. Through the power of the art that my friend created for me, I was able to actually use both this art and the music together in a fresh, more coherent take on what this project is. It's a full album, and yes, it was recorded mostly on a four-track, and there's some, like, crazy amounts of hiss and bad recording stuff going on there, but this now stands as its own, and I have to give a massive shout-out. Hugs and tugs, and go, I hope to see you at some point soon. Love you. Back then, it was all about Beck, baby. So, to the music. Thinking back on it now, looking back on stuff I was really into when I was in my mid-teens and was growing up and forming my own tastes, there's a kind of B period where the best stuff was coming out from Bjork, the Beastie Boys, and Beck. They were kind of, there was also some of the things like Prodigy were huge for me, but they were basically huge from Charlie because they were just great. But that kind of B period was very influential on what I just thought was cool, what I was into. And basically this album that I'm talking about today, Lo-Fi Gold, 
basically, baby, it's all about Beck. Beck, to me, was the absolute shit. He was the man. He was so cool. I toyed up with, um, at one point, doing an actual Irish Beck persona, which would be called Feck. But I go back to Lo-Fi Gold now, and I just think, oh, I did it. I did it back then, you know. Um, in 1994, Beck released the album Mellow Gold, off which came the anthem of a generation single, Loser. Um, so obviously, the title Lo-Fi Gold is a tribute to Beck's album Mellow Gold. And also, just putting Lo-Fi in there as well, Beck was one of the first kind of like, he would put out some Lo-Fi stuff, or major labels would be willing to, so desperate to release anything by the the kid, this really weird white kid who put out the, the dancey loser thing, that they put out like some really, really lo-fi rough recordings that he had done while they were waiting for him to basically get his shit together and produce Odelay, which was his major crossover album. So even being into Beck exposed me to lo-fi and what that mean, meant. I was already into noise. I was already into some noise bands and the my touchstone of all time when it comes to rock music is still Velvet Underground. And they themselves were both noise and lo-fi, but in a period before any of that had been defined like that. So Beck really opened the doors to me to lo-fi. And listening back to this now, to lo-fi gold, didn't have to call myself Feck. I was actually being an Irish Beck, we've been called the Nihilist, and just bringing out music like this. Also, sonically, this music is closer to Beck than it is to either Bjork or the Beastie Boys, even though I kind of think you can hear elements, maybe, of both of them in it too. Um, but by the time I came to make this album, this Beck wasn't ma- actually massively what I was listening to. Well, no, let me qualify that. The Beck that I was listening to around the period that this album came out was his Midnight Vultures period. And that's when Beck went into a kind of 80s funk, electronic Prince, Rick James-ish kind of thing for an album and a bit before he went back to doing Sea Change, where it was much more acoustic. That was the Beck that I was listening to. And I don't know if that kind of stuff is. There's some. There's a song Stone Cold, which is very that. Beck doing Prince on Midnight Vultures. But sonically, what I'm working with on this album, and this is why it's called Lo-Fi Gold as well, I was making all of this music on one four-track, a four-track mini-disc recorder. That's how basic this shit was. It wasn't even cassette, it was mini-disc. Which, you know, at the time seemed like, oh, it's a step up, but you look back and I was like, nobody uses mini-disc now. Nobody wants one of them. Cassette recorders, though, grand. Give me one, actually, I'd love to use one again. But this was all made on mini-disc, on four tracks, and my instrument pool was one MC-303 groove box, a microphone, um, one distortion unit, or maybe two distortion unit pedals. Um, what else did I have? I had one effects rack, a zoom or effects, effects rack that I still have here in the studio today. Um, we mean to get that out again soon because they are still great and they stand up. The actual pot knobs on the front gives such lovely control over sweeps and stuff that a lot of other um, I feel effects units don't really have. Um, where am I talking about effects units? <laughs> should be talking about actually some of the music that um, I don't know if I should out myself for some of the samples that are going on on this album. Um, but I will throw a few names out there. 
basically what I was listening to a lot as well as um, Beck and what I found was much easier to sample and throw together and make music that was akin to or came from the same vague sonic kind of world but maybe with more of a slightly like twist of you know Timbaland on top of it as well because that was also the other thing that was at that point in 1999 Timbaland was slaying absolutely slaying it he was the absolute ma- maestro and if you were working in music in 1999 and you weren't at least captivated but like influenced by Timbaland uh, shouldn't talk to me really but I was really into a band called John Spencer Blues Explosion another B another B from my B period and I loved their really raw take on kind of a grind blues um, but I wouldn't even it's not necessarily 12 bar blues it's more like the rhythm and blues and the rhythm and there was two guitars and one very basic drum kit and a sample hello blues explosion they were just great sample fodder great sample fodder especially the first two albums I think it's Orange well so two of the earlier albums Orange and Extra Width um, sonically they're awesome albums they sound so great even now don't listen to Blues Explosion as much, but one or two tunes off those albums really still kicks ass. Bell Bottoms is probably their best known thing. They had some other offshoot bands with some other members. There was one called Boss Hog, who I've sampled on this. Um, and aesthetically and musically, another big influence on this was, on the one hand, you had a Blues Explosion. And then on the other hand, you had Folk Implosion which was a band uh, formed by Lou Barlow, who came from Dinosaur Jr. originally, then had a band called Sebado, which were a lo-fi kind of grungy pop, kind of but a bit more emo. I don't know how to describe it. You just have to listen to it. And then he had Folk Implosion, which I guess in some kind of way was his him trying to answer back to Blues Explosion. Folk Implosion were a lot, they employed a lot of samples, a lot of loops, a lot of layering, a lot of multi-instrumentalism that was very different from the lo-fi subido guitar kind of sound. And that was another big influence on me as well. It was just, um, they did the soundtrack to kids. And if you are a kid of the 90s and you saw kids in the 90s, I don't know how often you want to watch that film again because it's pretty brutal, but all you need to do is find some of the soundtrack original soundtrack recordings that are on YouTube taken from the OST of kids performed by Folk Implosion when they were making it a much more hip hop sound to reflect the streets of New York that are in that film. It's an absolute 90s head trip back in the day. Close your eyes and you can remember where you were when you saw a film that was about people your age and it was the moment that your generation came of age happens to every generation but our generation one of the celluloid things that sold us the image of what our generation was and who we could be and what we were into and all that stuff was a film called kids and folk implosion had a massive impact just by doing that film that i think has been a bit overlooked so shout out to blues explosion and folk implosion and Beck's Midnight Vultures, as well as, obviously, Odelay, um and Mellow Gold, and Sea Change, and any of his, like, great works, 
Beck is what this album basically is what he, he was wanted to be. So putting this album together, I decided, you know, make this very Beckish. Call it Lo-Fi Gold because that's what it is. The tunes are good, but the production is absolute weirdness. It's very much outsider music which is something I'll get into further as this series of podcasts goes on because I have a very... don't know how to describe my relationship with that term. It's one of a few terms that have been connected to my music over the years that I don't know how I feel about, but that's something that I want to talk about over the course of this podcast series. So, yeah, I think that's me all talked out now about Lo-Fi Gold. And if you've made it this far, listening to me waffle on, Spraffling all this shite about this self-indulgent nonsense of the art that I have <laughs> produced and created as over the course of my life. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's amazing to actually get the chance to do this, to actually get a chance to put this stuff out there again and talk about it and contextualize it myself and not have to worry about any of that stuff. So if you have made it this far into this waffle train, Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy the music, because it would be so, it would so suck to get this far into it and then hear the music and be like, this is shite, what the fuck did I listen to that for? So I hope you like it, Lo-Fi Gold by The Nihilist, music that I made between the years 1999-ish to about 2003-2004-ish, currently available to listen on Spotify. I'll be back next month with the next album, and out of nowhere.